Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Doug Polk, poker player, investor, and Bitcoin enthusiast. We talk about his challenge against Daniel Negreanu, grinding, and how he thinks about situations using game theory. Doug also tells us about his interest in Bitcoin, his analytical approach, and what he's planning to do going forward. Doug is an interesting poker player if I ever saw one. He was on top of the poker world with his game theory optimal strategy and suddenly quit, only to come back again for a challenge against Daniel Negreanu. They had a feud that lasted many years and this culminated in a three-month-long heads-up poker challenge where they played 25,000 hands against each other. Doug won that challenge to the tune of $1.2 million. He's now again quit poker. This is a situation many Bitcoin holders fit now face, so I hope you can emphasize, w- empathize with figuring out what's next. Doug Polk, how's everything going, man? It's good, dude. Thanks for having me on. Good to talk to you. It's been a hot minute since since we last chatted, so always nice to catch up with you, see what you're up to, and you know, talk about life, the world, everything that's going on around us. Thanks for having me on today. Yeah, I mean, how are things where you are? I think I believe you're in Vegas and like, you know, it's really hot there, but I know they've had some lockdowns and must be kind of tough. What's it been like? Las Vegas is kind of interesting. I think a lot of people don't realize this, but it gets cold in the winter. It actually snows in Las Vegas. Mm. And it would snow more if we had any moisture whatsoever because it is a desert. So not too calm. We got that. We had snow a week or two ago. It snowed. So not too hot at this point. I'd be lying if I said I'd left my house much, and I'd also be lying if I said it was because of COVID. <laughs> I'm kind of a homebody. So I've been fine. I've been good. And I've also been extremely busy playing this poker challenge that I recently undertook. So yeah, I've had my hands full. Yeah, and that was one of the most entertaining things. I swear it was like my wife would be like at like, you know, in the evening, just like, hey, what are you doing? Are you playing poker? I'm like, no, I'm just watching Doug. You know, it was something that I would do every night just to see what was going on. It was kind of like a super long sports game or something that I was watching that took a really long time. But oh, my goodness, the amount of hours you must have put into that thing. What was that like? Just like sitting there and I don't know, playing online poker against one person that whole time. It's interesting when you play heads up, right? Because mm-hmm. it's just you and another guy. There's no, someone takes a break and, and goes, leaves the table for a bit. If that happens, there's no game. So it's very personal in that regard. It's every time you lose, he wins and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So I think that kind of cutthroat nature of the game makes it a little less appetizing for maybe some players that want to play more casually. Definitely not for the faint of heart to step in and, and be in this arena but i like the way that you put it it kind of was like a multi-month sports event game because the score was just changing over the course of early november to early february and there was a bunch of swings there was a bunch of interesting sessions and i think you know when i look back on it overall i'm very happy with my performance with how much i ended up winning i think i studied i, I took it very seriously i think i played my a game for the vast majority if not all of it And I'm definitely proud of the victory that I had coming out of it. Yeah. One of the things that I realized uh, as I was watching some of your like post-session interviews and some stuff like that, it's just how hard you had to work just to like learn. It felt like kind of like chess and studying end games or something like that. You had to like memorize vast swaths of, you know, situations and what you're supposed to do. And I mean, it just sounded like a lot of studying, not just for you, but also for Daniel. It is a lot of studying, and uh, you know anyone that's in poker nowadays understands this. Maybe to the more casual viewer that's maybe seen it on TV, or maybe they saw one of the sessions of the challenge, or maybe they just watched the movie Rounders back in the day. You might not realize where the state of the game is in terms of technology and in terms of you know advancing the strategies of the game. Basically, computers will always be more powerful than people at solving games. They just will. You know, they just need to eventually have the computing power or the programming or whatever it takes. They're just going to be stronger than human. It's a question of when. And I think over the last four or five, six years, we've seen the torch get passed on from humans to computers. And now we defer to them to understand the way that strategy should look. What's the correct play? How do we play all of the hands we can have? Our, our range. 
what's the right size to bet, all these kinds of things. We now can just defer to computers who will tell us what the correct answer to these things are. So if you want to play poker at a high level in today's game, you're going to have to spend a really immense amount of time, not just looking at what the computers say is correct, but then learning how to actually implement that in real time versus someone who's also trying to figure out what you have. You know, it's a tall order, I think, to compete at the highest level in poker in today's environment. Yeah. And the big thing about this, and for a lot of people listening, they might be like, well, what's the correct way to play? Isn't it just, you know, you play your good cards and, you know, you fold your bad cards, something like that. But I want you to explain to our audience, like, just how complicated game theory can get and, you know, figuring out where the equilibrium is and so on. And just give them a taste of sort of the analysis that goes into this. I like that you use the word equilibrium because that's really what you're striving for when you play poker at a high level. And let's just take a step back from poker and just think about any game for a moment. In any strategy game between two teams or two people, you need to have a diverse and robust total strategy or else your opponent can find ways to beat you. And I'm just going to give a very simple football analogy, right? Let's say you decided you were going to run the ball every play, which would not be a very good strategy. But let's just say for the sake of argument, you decided that's what you were going to do. Well, then when teams play you, they're not going to guard your receivers because why guard a receiver when you're just going to run the ball? And before you know it, you have all 11 of their guys stacked up, ready to tackle the guy who gets the ball. You're going nowhere fast, right? But now what if you had the brilliant idea, oh, you know what? Our receivers are pretty open. How about we throw to one of these wide open guys? That play is going to be a touchdown. And so that's sort of the idea with the equilibrium strategy for a football team. You need to have some runs and some passes and all kinds of stuff so that the defense has to prepare to face everything. So now taking that and applying that to poker, you need to have a strategy that counters anything your opponent can do. Let's say he wants to play really tight and fold a lot of hands. Okay, well, you need to have bluffs there that can run him over so you get to win with bad hands. Now let's say your opponent wants to play really loose and they want to see what you have and catch you bluffing. Well, now your good hands win a ton of money because you get to wager so much money with those hands that you win gobs of money when he does decide to make those calls. And so the idea is you want to be playing an equilibrium strategy where no matter what my opponent decides to do, I'm going to beat him. And that was what what I tried to try and that level is what I went for in the challenge. And that's what I think most top poker players today, kind of what their goal is, is to play at that level. Mm. And how did poker evolve that way? Because at least from what I remember way back when, it was just sort of like looking at the other person in the eye and trying to figure out whether they were bluffing. And, you know, it was more a game of tells and maybe courage to like raise the other person when even when you had nothing or something like that. Instead, it's become a lot more about finding the equilibrium and, and, you know, doing things in almost, you know, at the right rates of things so that the opponent can't easily make money off of you based on what they know that you're going to do. When did that happen? It's a gradual transition. I think some of the first steps in that direction were, you know, I guess if we wanted to go back five, 10 years or so, there was a university in Canada that, I forget which university it was now, I want to say Alberta, but anyway, there was some Canadian university that created a solution to limit hold'em, basically, down to a very, very small percentage, the perfect way to play limit hold'em. Now, limit hold'em is a much easier game to figure out because you don't get to choose what you bet. You're only allowed to bet what the game says you can, right? So let's say that you're playing 510, you're on the turn, you can only bet $10. But what makes no limit so hard to figure out, so hard to calculate, is that you can bet any amount you have in front of you at any time. So there could be $20 in the middle, but if you have 5,000, you can bet all 5,000 if you want to bet 5,000. Now, normally that's not a very good strategy, but you're welcome to do it if you want to. And so because of that, it made it much more difficult to get solutions for No Limit Hold'em. And even the solutions that we have today, they're estimations based on a smaller subset of options than what would be an actual theoretical solution, right? So just just as an example, let's say that there was $100 in the middle and you wanted to have the perfect betting strategy. Well, a perfect bot would have 
all kinds of sizes. It might be 18, 36, 42, 110, 119, 176. It, it might have you know 50 or 100 sizes. But as humans, that's not really something that is applicable. And then also for computers to solve, if you throw in all these different sizes, then it makes the, the game tree, the amount of options that are possible in a hand, far too big. So what people started to do when they were looking for solutions is let's limit the number of inputs that we can give it. Let's say that it can bet half pot or 50% the size of the pot or 100% the size of the pot, but not anything else in between. And by lowering the, these number of options in the game tree, we started to see some real clear patterns in what strategies and what bet sizes created the most value in terms of their total strategy. And from there, we were then able to start to implement those things into our own game. Mm, I see. So it's evolved as sort of like computers have solved it. If you make the analogy like limit is maybe chess and no limit is maybe go something like that, and it's still being worked on something like that. I think that's a reasonable analogy. I'm not sure that there are people that know the exact permutations that you can have in all of these games. And I'm sure someone will say, well, technically it's to the seventh power or whatever. <laughs> so I, I don't want to be on the record saying that it's exactly like that analogy per se, but it's something like that. That stands to reason that it's certainly something that is much more complex than its limit hold'em counterpart. I think another big part that changed poker was just the availability of resources for people to be able to use some of these programs. I bet in 2010, 2014, those years, this stuff existed, but it was privately available. People either developed it themselves or they had you know, maybe a group of friends or they purchased something. It was in the circles of players, right? Whereas now mm. we're talking about just publicly available resources. And of course, you also have training sites such as upswingpoker.com. <laughs> I had to work the plug in there, of course. <laughs> there uh, you go. <laughs> that use these tools and then can take them and teach you things, right? Because one of the cool things about being able to take these tools is that you can create sort of guidelines that you see be true in many different simulations of hands and you can take that and then you can apply that to your game in ways that are actually applicable because i think the real tough thing with poker is that the game is just so complicated and there's so many different hands and there's so many different sizes and there's so many different things that you can do that when you look at a simulation of, of what or a sim for short is what poker players call it you look at a sim and it says okay well when you have the jack 10 you're supposed to go all in but when you have the queen jack you're supposed to bet this amount and you know so on and so forth it can start to become very difficult in the moment to try and play the correct game. So we start to build out some heuristics that we can take and actually apply in real time. Because that's the thing too, right? You know, it's all well and good to know all of this stuff and have a really deep understanding of the game and know all these sizes and hands and all of that stuff is just great. But then reality strikes, which is I have a limited amount of time. I'm playing against a player who's trying to beat me. Here we go. Now make a decision. And mm. Sometimes it's not a spot you've studied. Sometimes it's not a spot that you know you know the answer to, but that doesn't mean you get the opt out of playing. You still have to play. You can't just walk away from the table. I'm done here. You still have to, you know, what am I going to do in this hand, right? So basically we can take these outputs from computers, create guidelines and rules to the best of our ability and then implement them. And then after we play hands, we can run the hand and see what does the computer like? Did it like the decision I made? Did it not like the decision I made? Okay, what can I tell about this? And we can continue to refine and perfect that process of playing the game. Hmm. Well, that brings me to sort of like transition question here. So obviously, if people are not aware, you're sort of transitioning away from poker, but you've obviously done a lot of studying in game theory and things like that. What has sort of like this game theory optimal approach to poker taught you about life and how do you think you're going to apply that going forward? There's a healthy balance you should strive for when you learn about game theory and you get deep in the wood, uh, deep in the weeds. You want to make sure that when you're looking at other industries or other other businesses or other investments, I think it helps give you this ability to think rationally and evaluate these opportunities on their merits and the average return without feeling some sort of bias towards one way or the other. But the, the drawback can be when that starts to seep into your personal life and you start to look at everything like an EV calculation. Sometimes things are not EV calculations. You just have to take the trash out, you know, what I'm saying? or whatever you have to do at your house. So it can't leak its way into everything that you can possibly do. I have a buddy, his name is Ryan Fee. And whenever 
if I complain about something or Matt complains about something or you know maybe maybe my dog was throwing up in the middle of the night or whatever it would be, he'll he'll just say, oh, market economy, there should be someone in your house taking care of your dog. And I, <laughs> it's, it's like fees, that's not a reasonable solution for this problem, you know. <laughs> but there's always some kind of EV calc, right, when you're looking at decision making in terms of business or finance or investing or what you're doing. And, and I think being able to make that calculation is important in many different industries. As for what I'm looking to do personally moving forward, I'm not entirely sure. I've dabbled in a lot of different stuff. I've enjoyed making some some YouTube content in the past as well. Lord knows I enjoyed dunking on some of the scammers in the Bitcoin and crypto streets. Those were some really good times that were had. I'm not exactly sure what's in the cards for me, but I'm looking forward to figuring it out. Mm. Well, the one thing about this challenge that really struck me was that it was kind of like an old-fashioned duel, except it took a really long time and there was no death involved. But I mean, it was kind of like that put up or shut up kind of moment, right? Like where you know you can sort of settle your differences on the field instead of like sniping at each other, you know, from in YouTube videos or whatever. Like, how did that feel, right? Like, because in a sense, like there was some animosity between you and Daniel before the challenge. And, you know, I mean, does it feel different after the challenge? Do you feel like things were settled because you went through this thing in a sense together? Like you went to war against this person. Like, how's it feel now? It does feel a little bit different. It reminds me a little bit of when you see a UFC fight, right? And two fighters enter and they're both talking shit and ready to go. And then, and then they fight, and then at the end, someone wins, and they usually you know, shake hands or hug it out or whatever it is, because this was a three-month duel, and there was a bunch of preparation beforehand, and there was all kinds of stuff said publicly on both sides and from neutral parties, as well as all of the fans and everything else, the streamers, the commentators, everything that was said. So at the end of it, when it's all said and done, it's hard to really have you know, strong feelings of dislike towards the other person even before the challenge with daniel i never i never hated daniel i disliked some of the things that he said i thought that they weren't they weren't correct or maybe he wasn't trying to protect the average poker player enough because he was sponsored by poker sites or more most specifically poker stars at the time so i thought maybe he had lost a little bit of the touch with those players and trying to protect and defend them but you know this wasn't a guy i hated it was a guy that i disagreed with and we had some feuds publicly and i definitely trolled him a time or two you know there may or may not have been a billboard at the rio <laughs> during one of those summers along the way but the point is it's once it was all said and done I have a lot of respect that he decided to take on such a tough challenge uh, in a game that he knew he was the underdog in, and he gave it his all. And I think by the end, he played at a level that he can certainly be proud of. It just, you know, we're talking about playing someone that's one of the best in the world at something. And, you know, there aren't many things that I'm particularly good at, Jimmy, to be honest with you. And this just happens to be the one I'm, the, I'm one of the best at, right? So, you know, coming into that and, and trying to compete at that level, I think that that shows some real heart. And I respect that he took on the challenge to begin with. Yeah, there was like, and you could kind of see it even during the challenge, right? Like the post-game interviews and stuff like that. I'd watched some of yours, some of Daniel's. And I don't know, you guys both like were a little more, you know, like hating each other a little more at the beginning. And then as it went on, there was almost like a calm that developed with both of you. It was just kind of like, oh, you know, this is what happened. Almost like, you know, you can see what was going on. Like there was a settling of differences through the battle almost. Like, you know, and like if you've watched the, you know, Hamilton musical or something like that, that was like sort of like the idea of the first duel that happens in the production is, you know, they... One guy shoots the other, injures him, but doesn't kill him. And he says, I'm satisfied. And the other guy says, I'm satisfied. And then they they can both sort of walk away with their head held high. It really does feel like that's kind of what happened between the two of you. I think that's a good analogy. And I did see Hamilton, by the way, which was fantastic. (laughs) I love that reference. Yeah, I think after this, it certainly helped calm the animosities that we had before. I think that it's also given both of us a respect for the other, at least to some extent. And I also think that it's a bit strange because it just it, the match went on for so long, right? That mm. it became just such a focal point. How well can I play? You know, making sure that I'm playing my best poker, being so focused and everything kind of outside of it. That by the end of it, you're just burnt out, man. 
this has been so many months of study and play. You know, this is not – I don't know how many hundreds or, or – man, did it get into the thousands? I don't know of hours were spent preparing and playing this. I don't have any room left for any animosity <laughs> after that. Oh, man. So you spent your energy on the field. Now, like, all that emotion is just spent. You don't care to pick it back up again. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. So let's think about this. I started... The challenge was issued and accepted in early August, and it's early February now, right? Mm. So this thing spanned six months, a few months of preparing and really trying to get myself to a level where when the challenge started, I would be playing extremely good poker. And then the three months of playing, and obviously there was just 25,000 hands, probably played, I don't know, 150, 200 hands an hour, maybe, maybe more like 150. So, you know, 140 hours of playing, hundreds and hundreds of hours of study. And then, and then also, of course, you have to deal with all of the public side of this and post-game interviews and everything else that was involved. It was quite an undertaking, for sure. So and you were, uh, you were in the spotlight the whole time. It's like three months of the camera on you the whole time. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and this event was so interesting because there is so little poker going on right now, right? Because live poker is a bit of a of a shit show during COVID. Obviously, it's hard to get a, a very COVID-safe area. And then, of course, you have all the laws around it. Basically, live poker really came to a standstill. And so the community was just all at home and sort of needed something to watch. And, and this became the spectacle. And also, mm-hmm. I have to imagine, I would not be surprised if this event was the single most wagered upon poker event of all time. In fact, <laughs> I, I don't even really think, I can't really think of what would be second. Maybe there's something out there, but it's probably the most wagered upon of all time. And then I also think that this was probably the most viewed event of all time. You know, mm. the thing about the World Series of Poker main event, stuff like that, of course, in the moment, that's going to be the most viewed. But the final table goes on for three days. This went on for three months. You know, this was a yeah. long time. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they condense it down, right? They only show like the, you know, top 50 hands or something like that on the final table. We literally got to see every hand, although we didn't get to see the whole cards, but we got to see every hand, which was what, 25,000 hands? How many hands do you see in like an hour of poker on TV? Maybe like 10, like if that? Yeah, not very many. They actually, they do the final table, I think, live on ESPN for when it actually happens and then they re-edit it. I actually got to host part of the main event one of those times. So Mm. that was cool getting to, you know, get to talk on ESPN for a bit. And it was funny, actually, I, I did, I was doing more sort of analysis of hands and I, I just have a producer in my ear while I'm talking on ESPN, and he's yelling at me, lay out, Doug, lay out. And, and I'm thinking, <laughs> I don't know what that means. I'm not in production. I'm not. And then just yelling in my ear. And then eventually they just turn it off me mid-sentence. And then you know he says later, why didn't you get off? I told you to lay out. I don't know, man. I'm not a professional <laughs> broadcaster. I don't know layout means get off the air. I was trying to finish my point, you know? So that was fun going to do that. Yeah, I, and that seems like something that you would want to do. But before we get to the commentating and sort of possible next careers for you, would you recommend this sort of like, I don't know, battling it out, coming to blows, but without like actually hurting each other or killing each other as a decent way to settle differences? Like, do you think that's like a viable thing? Because I don't know, we're hearing about a lot of other challenges as a result of your challenge with Daniel. Definitely. I think that when two people disagree, duking it out either through you know, arguing or, or debate or poker or sports or whatever it may be, I think that that's a completely reasonable way for to go as long as both people understand and they realize the risks and they accept them. I do like that you made sure to include not kill each other because that's that's a good that's a good line in the sand to safely draw. This is not going to turn into a duel where someone gets killed. So that's good. No, that's definitely good to protect yourself. Well, I this is like I, I wonder how much of it we should bring back, right? Because in a sense, like if you read like the biography of Hamilton and all that, like there were a lot of situations where you know, people were publicly feuding. And then like one person sort of like suggested that they needed satisfaction. And then one person backed down and things were just sort of settled after that. Or it came to blows and they actually had a duel and they might injure each other, but not kill each other or something. And then they were able to sort of walk away. Unlike sort of like what we have today with Twitter, where people are just like complete jerks to each other. And, you know, like, 
if anybody said anything like that back then, they would have had a duel like right away. Like, you know, like maybe having that sort of backstop helps people be more civil to each other. What do you think? There's a safeness that people use online, which is, I always mess up on this word, (sighs) anonymity? Anonymity, yes, sorry. (laughs) Anonymity. You ever have a word that you just struggle to say? (laughs) So uh, uh, anonymousness uh, online that people really hide behind that I think makes the experience a lot worse for everyone. I think if everyone had to have their real name and face as their profile picture, we'd have a lot less of these, you know, internet macho tough guys who are just saying horrible things online to people for sure. I'm not sure what the solution is. We're getting into some pretty grand scheme problems here, right? With Mm. the internet and the way that society operates nowadays. I think one of the toughest parts nowadays is that if you're a well-known person or you're a well-known figure, every single aspect of you is logged and posted about and shared and talked about. And I think that back in the day, it was a lot easier for your heroes to be your heroes because you didn't know what your hero did at Friday night in Atlantic City. You, you were never going to find out, you know, whereas nowadays you're going to find everything out. Someone's going to do a tell all at some point. Good luck. So there's a publicness to the Internet for the people that actually want to have personalities that I think is tough. And uh, it's only going to get more like that moving forward. Mm, yeah, so there's a privacy that you wish could be preserved even for your heroes that maybe is lost there as part of the internet is what you're saying? Yeah, certainly. And social media and sort of the all, all the issues with social media as well. Mm. So let's talk about sort of possible new careers for you. I think one of the things that you brought up was commentating, and you're certainly very good at that. You have like hundreds of videos on YouTube where, you know, I'll just sit there and sometimes like watch Doug Polk, you know, analyze some hand from somebody and just be like, okay, yeah, that makes sense because that was what, you know, here's how you have to choose your bluffs and here's where they're supposed to bluff 70% of the time and things like that. Just really interesting ways of analyzing things. Do you think you can bring that skill to something other than poker? It's definitely possible to apply that over. I think the main thing for me is, I don't know about you, Jimmy, but I'm one of those guys that I'm really bad at doing stuff casually. I either am (laughs) all in on it every day I wake up and I just eat, breathe, and, and all I can do is that thing, or I'm completely out. And so I just really need to find something that I'm passionate about sort of in that same way because with poker, I think what really helped me come up back in the day when I was younger, I wasn't some natural talent who just really understood the game intuitively. I had to work hard, man. I I really had to earn it. I couldn't just show up and beat people. I wasn't good enough to be able to do that. I had to really spend the hours figuring things out and trying to make sure that I'm playing at that level. So I think whatever I do next, I just need to find something that I'm super passionate about. And I'm sure the rest will fall into place naturally. Yeah. And you'll be producing YouTube videos about it, even if it's about making YouTube videos, I, I imagine. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's the future. YouTube videos about YouTube videos. Super <laughs> so meta. many. Have you seen those? They're so popular too. It's like how to set up your YouTube video, how to edit your YouTube video, how to you know like sound good on your YouTube video or how to do makeup for your YouTube. There's like every single thing has like at least 100,000 views. It's kind of crazy. I don't know. Well, YouTube's a huge platform, and it's only going to grow from here. And I think building a YouTube channel can be fun and rewarding in its own way. And sort of on the come up, when I got into the YouTube game, I had a lot of fun checking the analytics and looking at what things did well or didn't do well and you know, trying to make sure that I was playing the game optimally. And, and you know, I even would message you sometimes and say, hey, with your thumbnail, you could do this or that. Trying to just play the game better, right? Because that's really what you're doing. So YouTube can be fun and rewarding, but there's a dark side, which is it, it becomes very grindy. It, it <laughs> becomes very, you know what I'm saying? The, the content you have to put out just to put it out. You have to be consistent. So some of that stuff can be kind of tough. Well, that doesn't sound like poker at all. True. That's actually a great point. <laughs> yeah, I imagine that's the case uh, with almost everything. But But I mean, in a sense, what you were able to do was you know, create a lot of content on, you know, on poker. I can't see why you wouldn't be able to do that for something else. Certainly you were doing it for crypto for a while. What happened there? Like, did you just sort of stop or are you still interested in doing more of that or what's going on? That's a good point. And, 
you know, I, I got into making some videos about Bitcoin or altcoins or, you know, dunking on scammers or, or just news in the crypto space for a bit. What I found about that space was it's a bit tough from the content perspective for me because first off, unlike so in poker, I'm the expert, right? I'm the guy that knows. Mm. I'm not in Bitcoin crypto space. I'm not. I'm fine with that. It doesn't mean I can't not, you know, be pro Bitcoin. I've been on the record telling people to buy Bitcoin since 2014. I did podcasts and said that, and I was, you know, saying it before then too. So I've been a, a Bitcoin bull for it basically since I heard about Bitcoin, and I'm not surprised at all to see the success that it's had. And moving forward, I'm going to continue to be a Bitcoin bull. But that doesn't make me an expert. You know, I just know that long run Bitcoin is going to win. I don't know anything else other than that. And that's not really enough of a platform to be able to advise people. And and I found, you know, I, I was typically very upfront with that. But then I'd find mm. even myself talking in videos about things I'm doing. or and then, and then I think, you know, am I really even qualified to be saying this? And I struggled a bit with that because mm. that's just so different from poker. But outside of that, one thing I saw as well was you're very much, you know, as a content creator, you have to, to some degree, care about how much audience that you have. I mean, that's an important part of your job is building mm. an audience. And what I found was oftentimes how many viewers I had was just entirely market-based. So mm. if Bitcoin <laughs> was just going up, a lot of people tuned in. Bitcoin's going down, nobody cares. And I just didn't want to have to be at the mercy of the market like that. It just, it just didn't <laughs> seem very fun to me. Welcome to Bitcoin, because this is something that Andreas Antonopoulos told me before I was writing my first book. He told me, you know, like... The sales of my book, I've been tracking it against my speaking engagements, against my YouTube appearances, videos, everything else. Nothing correlates to it like price. And that's what he told me. It's like, you're not going to be able to do anything that will make any difference like price will. So yeah, there you go. Which is tough, I think, when you start to make that your main deal is <laughs> my main source of income or well, maybe not source of income, but my main way I'm spending my time is going to be almost entirely dependent on how Bitcoin did today. I don't know. That just seems, on average, that'll be good, right? But there will be multi-year times that that's not the case. And I just can't go through with, that's just too much to deal with. <laughs> well, I suppose it's hard enough, like at least in your career as a poker player, dealing with like the ups and downs of you know, being a poker player. But at least you have some control over it. With Bitcoin price, you really don't. And that, I suppose, is maybe the big difference there between the two. Well, I think as an investor, I don't have a problem with the swings at all. You just understand they're going to happen. You know, I look at it's just silly. I don't know what price I bought my first Bitcoin, 130, 180, I don't know, something like that. Mm. It's at $46,000 right now. That's not a lot of downswings in there, you know? Yeah, there were some times that wasn't good, of course, but this thing has been on overall one hell of a run up for as long as I can remember. And I also remember when I first heard about it, I, th I thinking, wow, this makes a lot of sense. You know, money that people can't control and money that will become deflationary and money that the banks can't control and, and money that you can move around as you see fit. I mean, the premise just made so much sense that I just thought this is going to be successful, you know? Mm from the very, very early days. And, and I don't think that any of those properties have changed. Mm. Well, I mean, that's obviously done very well for you if you've held Bitcoin since 2014, uh, seven years of doing that. When did you start upswing poker? Just curious, like sort of the timeline. I started upswing, which year was it exactly? They all started building together. I think we started upswing in late 2016. Okay. And then launched our first course in early 2017. I think that's the okay. timeline. And what's that been like for you as an entrepreneur? I imagine that's a little bit different than being a poker player. It's completely different. Upswing's been been interesting to learn about business and, and dip my toes into something a little more real world standard success type of I don't know how to describe this exactly but <laughs> but you know what I'm saying starting a business that's not something that's you, you play poker for a living you're off the beaten path man you're out in the safari <laughs> you got your hatchet you're, you're slicing your way through the woods or mm -hmm. the jungle this is a more standardized path for sure and and so you got to, I got to learn about all kinds of different things you know how to run a business how to hire people how to build how to market how to grow basically everything that 
you know, I had to do for the company to be successful. And I'm really proud of what we did. I'm fairly certain we're the largest online poker training site or training site, I should say. And I think that our members have gotten a ton of value. I've seen a lot of our members go from playing really small stakes to having successful careers in poker. And, you know, that's great to see that there are people that have taken that and use that as a stepping stone to get to where they want to go in poker. And then it's also rewarding just to have something be successful where you input a lot of your time and energy, and then you start to see it become profitable. And then before you know it, you're running a profitable business. I think that that's just cool just to see that kind of return and to to be making money in that way is something that's very rewarding. Mm. Is that something that you want to pursue in the future? Not necessarily with poker, obviously, but you know, in something else that you just sort of dive in and maybe see a problem in the market and try to address it through you know, creating a good or service. Totally possible. I could see myself going that direction. And I think that, you know, it's great when you find something that you think can really offer value. When I look at poker training, the way that the training science had worked in the past, they all sort of had the same exact formula. And it was based around, there was a site that was successful in the late 2000s. Uh, it was called Card Runners. And it was the biggest training site at the time, maybe one of the biggest ever because Black Friday happened not that long after it. But they had this formula, which was you pay a monthly fee and every day or two, some new videos come out and it would be from all kinds of videos from all kinds of different people. And it was, you know, the amount of content that you got was impressive, but it wasn't really a... It wasn't a course format where you start at the beginning and then you learn from a small team of people that take you sort of ground up. It was just you get kind of thrown in there. Okay, you have hundreds or thousands of videos by all these different guys. And so it was a mishmash of everything that was out there. Whereas we had a at Upswing, we had a take that was, let's, let's do it in a course format. You sign up. Okay, you start with video one. Move your way through all the videos. And then you know where you're at and you know that the people teaching you are going to be a small team of highly qualified coaches in a curriculum type format. So we got to kind of take something that was out there, make a better version of it and offer that to provide value to people. And I think that's really, you know, at the heart of what you should be striving for in a business is not just to make money, but to be offering something of value that really helps the people that are purchasing it from you. So I think if I could find the right industry to try, to try and do that in. I would, of course, be interested in that. But that's the the catch, right? It's trying to figure out a business model that really makes sense and provides value to people. And that's not easy to do. Hmm. Well, so so you discovered Bitcoin in 2014. You did upswing in 2016. And you, know, you continued your poker career. And then you are now kind of retired from poker. Like, was there any point where you wanted to do more of the Bitcoin related stuff other than the, you know, the videos that you were making? Like, was there like a deeper dive that you wanted to do? So, sorry, could you rephrase that one more time? <laughs> was there a point in the last seven years that you wanted to do a deeper dive into Bitcoin and like, I don't know, maybe create a business kind of like yeah, uh, what you did at Upswing. So I, I created a, a media site, Coin Central, where mm. we had a lot of different articles. And uh, Coin Central still a site today. We have a lot of good stuff, but it just didn't really find its footing. I think, in mm. terms of offering a product, that's not to say that Coin Central still doesn't have good articles and information for people to read. And in long run, maybe there could be some avenues for success for the business. But in the same type of capacity, where you know, with poker, with upswing, okay, clear value proposition. Hey, do you want to go to poker here? You know, we have products for people to purchase to, to improve uh, their poker ability. It's a little harder with Bitcoin because mm. what am I going to do? Create a course and you buy it and it says, okay, go buy Bitcoin. You know, that's not a, <laughs> that's not a great course, you know? Uh, also, obviously, that someone can tell you that for free. So I think it's a little tougher in the cryptocurrency space to build a business that actually creates value for people that they're going to want to buy from unless it's hard to do that unless you have a really technical skill set right if you're able to to program and you're able to actually create something of value then that's fine but if you don't i think it's a hard space to find a way to add value in mm. 
Mm. Yeah. I mean, have you thought about programming? Because like at least the level of analysis that I hear from you and, you know, the way you think about game theory and just sort of the level of analysis that you do that's uh, very rigorous. I mean, I think those skill sets map almost perfectly to programming, if I'm being honest. Like, have you thought about it? I've considered it. But I also just know how difficult and how many hours it takes to become competent. So I don't want to undertake it unless I I thought that that was something that I would be very passionate and interested in. I'm not saying I I couldn't see myself doing that, but at least at the moment, I think I'm probably going to try and pursue some other avenues. Also, I'm sort of at a point now where I think if I wanted to retire and, you know, find more hobbies to, to pursue, I could certainly do that if I so chose to. So I don't want to jump into anything too rigorous unless <laughs> unless I know I want it. And programming is certainly rigorous. Let's not undersell the the difficulty of the craft. Fair enough. Fair enough. But what are some of these other things that you're considering? You know, I'm really not sure right now. My, my first order of business is I'm going to move. I'm strongly considering Texas, really any other place where I don't have state income tax and warm weather. And I'm going to try and find the location that makes, I think, sense for me to set up long term. What are your thoughts on Texas as a location? Oh, I love it. I, other than the allergies that I'm suffering from right now, which, uh, you know, not a lot of people know about, but January and early February tend to be sort of cedarish, at least here in Austin. The other parts of Texas might have different things. But I mean, as far as the state goes, it's, you know, they mostly leave you alone and there's no state income tax. And, you know, it's a big state. So there's a lot of different places that you can go that offer different things. So, I mean, you should maybe visit. I don't know. Yeah, I'm planning on visiting in the near future here and check some places out. And I think one of the best upsides is, of course, you get to wear a cowboy hat everywhere you go. Is is that not right? (laughs) Well, I do, but uh, not everyone does, believe it or not. But there are really good places to buy cowboy hats if you are so interested. I'm going to have to... yeah, I'm gonna have to give that give that I'm gonna have to check that out. I'm gonna have to see how the how the hat works for me. <laughs> I think everyone looks at least twenty percent better. It doesn't matter if you're male, female, old or young or gay or straight or whatever. They everyone looks twenty percent better. That's what I say. Right, because gay and straight people would look very different. So that's important that we, we, we signify which one it is. Now, I, I, I see where you're going well, with I'm that, I'm just Jimmy. saying style-wise, right? Like, you right, know, no, no, uh, of course, of course. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, yeah, there are sort of like things that you can do. If you were to retire, what sort of hobbies do you think you would take up? Because it, it doesn't strike, you don't strike me as the type of guy that could just like sit and play video games eight hours a day. I think that would get just as boring as, you know, grinding on poker or something like that. You say that, but I really do enjoy video games. (laughs) I've been playing a game called Counter-Strike at a pretty high level over the last year or so. It's, It's rewarding because it's a strategy game. There's a lot of tactics and strategy, but there's no solutions. And I think with poker, one of the things that I think really started to get to me was just, I just don't like the idea of playing a strategy game with such clear this is the answer type of solutions because I feel it really hampers the creativity for people to come up with their own solutions and come up with, with ways around complicated problems that maybe wouldn't you wouldn't immediately see or wouldn't immediately meet your eye. And, and I, love, I love strategy and I love complexity. Hmm. So that element of video games I like. I enjoy things like chess. I enjoy I enjoy anything strategy based. To be honest with you, I'm I'm a pretty big fan of. Mm. Oh, I mean that sounds like a good fit then. Uh, although I don't know, I would think that you know bots have solved like video games. I mean, certainly they can play better than humans, though. Absolutely true, but there's still a element of creativity and solution and strategic thinking that that is is a lot harder to quantify in video games because there is a complexity there on the executional aspect as well that I think it's kind of hard for computers to take into account. Yeah, I really, you know, I wish I had a, this is what I'm doing next, man. I'm kicking this (laughs) off. And I really just don't. I think for a year or two, I was sort of trying to figure out what that looked like. And then, you know, this challenge happened and I thought, you know what, I've done nothing for long enough. Let's go. And so I fired it up and I spent a half a year just fully dedicated. It was actually nice just waking up and knowing today I'm doing this, Mm. you know, whether it is it the perfect thing for me or not. And all of these, you know, real, you know, first world problems. Am I living the life I I want to live type (laughs) of stuff? You don't have to think about that. I know what I'm doing today. I'm waking up, I'm studying and I'm going to play some poker, you know? So that was nice in its own way. And I think once I, I get set up wherever I'm headed, 
and I get to sit down and really kind of think about things. I'll, I'll find something next, man. I don't know what it'll be. Maybe it could be politics. It could be another business. It could be getting back in the YouTube streets. Lord knows. I know I don't know. So I'm just excited to see where this crazy path of life will take me. Well, so, I mean, has that existential angst returned <laughs> Like now, now that the challenge has finished? Or like, like how, what's the process to figuring this out? I, I love how, how hard you're driving it here. You're, you're really, really <laughs> forcing me. I don't know, Jimmy, what do you want, man? Yeah, I don't know. I... Has the existential <laughs> angst returned? Yes. Yes, it has. No, I, I really, I really don't know. I, I mean, for well, now, I mean, it was, it was interesting because you, you kind of made the, made the challenge sound kind of like a relief. So I'm like, huh, that, that's interesting because in a sense, you seem to have this love hate relationship with this, with this whole challenge in a way. Yeah, there was a relief in a sense because you spent enough time thinking about, hey, what do I want to do? Actually, you know, another thing that I was potentially working on was. Mm-hmm. I was actually, I don't exactly know how much it should or shouldn't say, but it's failed at this point. So I assume I can't blow the doors off something that never happened. But basically, I was working on potentially a a show that would have been on a network with a real focus on just kind of, you know, the financial world, but not from the perspective that we see all of these dumb shows on which stocks up the day, which stocks down the day, but understanding money and understanding subject matter and understanding, you know, Bitcoin would have been a big part of it. And, you know, we filmed something legitimate and pitched it to a bunch of networks and ultimately ended up not working out, which was a bit disappointing for me. So, you know, I was really hoping to make that happen. There was some people that I really liked working with that I think it would have been a blast to do, but, you know, such is life. I was kind of waiting for that to see how that would go. That didn't pan out. Obviously the challenge is finished. And now I'm going to move and figure out whatever's next. So why, why wouldn't yeah. you do that just on your own on YouTube and like make the same show? Or, or is that not allowed or anymore? No, or what's what's the deal? You, you could do that. You could certainly do that. It's just it's a lot harder to organize everything on your own. And one thing I really found was with making YouTube content. Hmm. You have to be everything. You have to be the, okay, what's the direction we're going? Okay, what's the idea? Okay, what's the video title? Okay, what's the content about? Okay, now what's the subject matter? Okay, now... And, and it's 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 kind of all of these different jobs that you have to do. Whereas, mm. let's say you, you're you working on a show where you're the host. You're the host and, and everyone else takes care of these things and, and you're just getting to host <laughs> it, right? You know, it, it's, it's so different than then you wake up okay what's the direction what's the idea what's the title what's the video about what's going do your own research on this and all this different stuff it's a lot cleaner to have people that are all working in these roles and and to have a lot of people working on something like that it's expensive and and i don't know if that's a risk that i would want to take at this point Mm, so it's either you get a lot of decision fatigue from having to take on all of these roles or you pay for it, in which case it's too expensive to make it maybe worthwhile, something like that? Yeah, I, I guess I, I wouldn't totally rule that out either. I, I'm not mm-hmm. I'm not in the business of ruling stuff out right now. I'm in the business <laughs> of you know figuring out, taking life as it comes and trying to figure out what makes the most sense for me moving forward. Mm, okay. Well, I mean, it does sound like you have a significant amount of skills. I've been really impressed with sort of like the game theory and Figuring out like what the optimum is in any given situation. And I feel like that's a skill set that you can apply all over the place. And, you know, any poker player can tell you like a hundred aphorisms that apply to life as well. I'm sure you can too. And I, I do feel like those apply in ways that are sort of unexpected in all areas of life. So I think you'll be successful. I, I know I'm giving you a little bit of a hard time and figuring out what, what's going on and things like that. But, you know, I do it all in jest because uh, I really do think you're talented and many areas. And I think you'll do well in whatever you do. It seems, though, that the hard part is in figuring out what to do. And, you know, that's a common sort of angst that a lot of people go through right around, you know, somewhere in your 20s, 30s, somewhere around there. And then you turn 40 and you're like, what happened? Which is where I am. But, you know, sometimes that's that's how it is. Always glad to look forward to that next step on <laughs> the, the dread of where is life going? Is it fleeting or not? No, but th- thank you, by the way. I appreciate all the kind things. I do appreciate that a lot and means a lot coming from you. You know, I'm not really sweating it. I'm not worried about it at all. I just want to make sure that I pick things that I love to do and I'm interested in and I'm passionate about and just get to just get to live those out. That's really what my, my goal is from here. Okay. Well, so what opportunities do you think might come as a result of 
Bitcoin sort of changing the world? Uh, this is something that this is a question that I get often from people that are just trying to look forward, you know, trying to go where the hockey puck is going and not where uh, where it is right now, that sort of thing. Like, what are some opportunities that you see maybe coming forward? Well, I think that what's great about Bitcoin is it gives you a way to protect yourself against whatever governments decide to do moving forward, whatever ways the market decides to go moving forward, you give yourself the ability to have your own money that's only controlled by you that you know protects you from some of these other markets. I think Bitcoin acts as, as a really nice as a really nice diversification against a lot of other asset classes. And as far as where the future for Bitcoin is headed specifically, I think it's funny, right? We see these swings and, you know, you've been around for a long time. You know what I'm talking about, where Bitcoin goes up a lot. It's the future, guys. Everyone knew that, blah, blah, blah. It goes down, you know, 50%. Up. Oh, it was a scam. Everyone knew it was a scam. You know, it's gone forever now. See, told you, bubble popped. It's over. Bitcoin sucks. Then a year goes by. Up. Oh, Bitcoin's the future again. And so you're just going to see these common back and forths over and over again. But long term, I think we're going to see that the value proposition that Bitcoin offers is just going to be an attractive an attractive investment vehicle for all kinds of people. And I think when we look at this most recent purchase from Tesla, for example, purchasing $1.5 billion in Bitcoin, you know, one of the most valuable companies in the world just went moved huge on Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And what does that say, right? This is one of the most forward-thinking companies. In fact, it's the most forward-thinking car company. They just made it place a huge bet on Bitcoin because they believe in this. What do you think is going to happen moving forward? Do you think there's going to be less of things like that happening or more? And when I see that happening, I think it just further strength- strengthens my belief that in, in the long run, this thing is going to be worth, you know, just absolute an incredible amount of money. Wow. Yeah, and hopefully it changes life for the better, and uh, and it gives people courage to start their own businesses like you have, it. and hopefully they can take inspiration from a lot of the things that you've done. And you know, like despite you not knowing what you're going to do next, I have no doubt that you're going to be successful in it. So, thanks for coming on the show. Where can people find you? Do you want to find me? I'm on Twitter at Doug Polk Vids. That I basically tweet about whatever I'm up to, and yeah, that that's it. No website? <laughs> well, I don't have my own website set up. If you're interested in poker training, you can head over to upswingpoker.com. But if you're interested in following me, Doug Polk Vids works. Okay. All right. Well, it was an interesting look into what your mind is like and finding out all that you're going to be up to. So thank you for being on. No problem. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. It's always good to chat. And let's do another one of these before, I don't know, two years passes or whatever the last time was. <laughs> it's always good to talk to you. All right. Thanks, man. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Doug can be found at at DougPolkVids on Twitter and UpswingPoker.com. Until next time, fiat delenda est.